This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 27th of May 2023 on Monocle Radio. Hello there, it's Emma Nelson here broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Welcome. Coming up on today's programme, I'm delighted to say I'm joined in the studio by the former CNN Europe editor Nina Dos Santos for a look through the papers. Good morning, Nina. What have you spotted? Good morning, Emma. Well, I think what's really interesting is that the government of Ukraine is now finally saying that this counter-offensive to push Russian troops off of the country's sovereign territory as much as possible might finally begin within days or even weeks. Thank you for that. And have you ever found Mediterranean summers too hot? No, I haven't either. But Finland is hoping to attract tourists looking for a cooler kind of holiday. Plus... Rio is a very unique place because you can like combine a very urban life with all the contrast that you could see. We'll be hearing from the Brazilian artist Beatriz Milhazes. First, though, a quick look at the news. Negotiations to raise the debt ceiling in the US are expected to last into the weekend. It's understood both the White House and congressional Republicans are close to a deal to raise the government's capacity to borrow money. It's understood any agreement would involve limiting spending for two years. Two more members of the far-right so-called Oath Keepers group have been jailed for the attack on the US Capitol in January 2021. Kenneth Harrelson and Jessica Watkins were convicted of obstruction of an official proceeding after rioters fought police, smashed windows and terrified lawmakers. And a passenger on an Asiana Airlines flight who opened a door on the plane minutes before it landed has told police he was uncomfortable. The man in his 30s told police he opened the door because he wanted to get off the plane quickly. He also told police he was stressed after losing his job recently. And those are the headlines on Monocle Radio. And a very warm welcome to my guest in the studio today, Nina Dos Santos, the former CNN Europe editor. Good morning, Nina. Good morning. Looking uh, fit and sprightly, and I get the impression there's going to be a run done at the end of this programme. Is that right? Well, you know, the sun's out in London. doesn't happen that often, so I've been on a health <laughs> kick this week. <laughs> this is it. This is the moment where we actually just think, hang on a minute, we have to go outside. And it is, what, late May? That's right. You know, but we don't want the weather to peak too early. I mean, I've been, uh, you know, resident, born and bred Londoner for many, many years. You know, whenever we get that sort of false dawn in May, I get a little bit nervous. So I'm going to, you know, profit from the situation and uh, get my kilometres in. What was it? T.S. Eliot said that April is the cruelest month. I think May is a bit mean because it does give you the impression that it's all going to be okay, but it's not. It's filthy. And I know that many, many people, including actually Tamsin, our studio manager today, have been caught out by underdressing this week. The fact that you wake up, there's a bright sunny morning outside, summer wardrobe kicks in, and by half past 11, we're back to the big puffer jackets because it's so cold. That's right. The French have a great expression for this, don't they? They say, say, en avril, ne te découvre pas d'un fil, en mai, fais ce qu'il te plaît, which means (laughs) in April, don't take any item of clothing off because you might get caught out by the temperature, but in May, you're fine. Do what you like. But that's not the UK. No. (laughs) 
No, and also there's a lot of um, sort of flabby, fleshy legs coming out at the moment. Mine are staying firmly under trousers until I've sorted it all out. Right, let's have a look at what's happening in the news. Um, one thing, that's a bit of a handbrake term, but we'll, we'll do it anyway. Um, one thing that's all over the press this morning, uh, not least because there's an interview in the BBC um, from uh, one of Ukraine's most senior security officials, um, this is the moment when I think this is what everybody has been waiting for, which is a counteroffensive in Ukraine. Uh, he says, uh, Alexei Danilov has said the counteroffensive is ready to begin. Um, this is something that we've been waiting for for weeks now, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. He's the National Security and Defence Council member of Ukraine. So he's really within the war cabinet of um President Zelensky and crucial to rebuffing Russia's attempts to seize more sovereign territory of Ukraine, lobbying for a lot more weaponry that Ukraine has very successfully done from the West. And now he's given this interview, rare interview, I have to admit, he doesn't often give interviews, to say that rest assured the counteroffensive that everybody's been waiting for is going to happen within days, possibly weeks. He wouldn't put a specific time frame on this for obvious reasons. Um, but a lot of people think that perhaps this counteroffensive may already have slowly started to, to begin and that, you know, on either side of this war, there's going to be a hefty amount of sort of disinformation to try and make sure that each side can ambush the other to get an advantage. And um, he did comment on the situation in Bakhmut, that city that has been so badly battered uh, over the last few months, saying that the Wagner mercenary forces were starting to slowly withdraw from that city. But he said, you know, you have to be cautious to not uh, see that as a, a victory, a pyrrhic victory, if you like, to a certain extent, because they could seem to be regrouping in various other locations. He mentioned three locations, but didn't actually go into the specifics of where they were. Um, but, you know, Ukraine is under some pressure at the moment to try and use this opportunity of the weather, uh, the Western backing, because remember that, you know, in a year's time, there could be a different person in the White House in the United States or in a, a bit longer than a year, um, and that that could radically change the dynamic for Ukraine. So he said very clearly in this interview, you know, this is an opportunity we have to see it's a historic one that we cannot lose to try and rebuff Russian forces from our territory. And just to say also what we've also seen the last few weeks is what looked like Ukrainian special forces or pro-Ukraine Russian patriot, quote, groups engaging in sort of sabotage attacks in Russian territory as well on the border with Ukraine. So more confident, emboldened Ukraine now ready to seize the offensive, it seems, this week. They have to, though, because everybody for the last year and a half have been supporting them militarily with training, with equipment. And then we had this announcement earlier this week that um, the United States will train yeah. F-16 fighter pilots. And there is that feeling, isn't there? And I think we saw that last week when Volodymyr Zelensky did this brilliant publicity coup, basically hijacking the agendas of both the Arab League and the G7 by saying, look at me, you need to look at what is happening where I am. And listen to me. And listen to me. That it needed to happen now, didn't it? Because the, the momentum was there and everybody has put their money where their mouth is to, to, to all intents and purposes. Ukraine now needs to demonstrate that it can take what it has been given by the rest of the world and use it effectively to repel Russia. I, I think a lot of uh, sort of Russia and Ukraine watchers who've been covering this war will say that 
the Ukrainians have already demonstrated that actually they've managed to use Western weaponry with aplomb um, and, you know, in a far more ambitious and effective manner than it has been used in the past. Um, I'm thinking of the downing of huge ships in the Black Sea uh, that really damaged Russia's fleet there. Um, but yes, you're right, in terms of sort of that shopping list that Zelensky had ideally on his, uh, you know, on his shopping list about a year or so ago, and that the White House consistently tried to rebuff because they said, you know, we're nervous that uh, Russia might, um, might this might stoke Russia's ire and that they might use tactical weapons, nuclear weapons. Um, now Russia hasn't done that. And so the West has been more forthcoming with this type of weaponry. But also climactically, we're in a window of opportunity, aren't we? Because the weather is something that stymies the fighting during the... Um, you know, the winter months. And then when the ground is more solid, you know, there are different types of uh, different types of offensives that can take place with tanks. And now, as you said before, with uh, fighter jets, it's going to take some time to train up those fighter jet pilots, though. And it's also quite important that Ukraine is being trusted with this sensitive uh, weaponry to, to have access to F-16 fighter jets and to know how to fly them is a really big deal. Stepping back though, it is so clear, isn't it, when you think about it, that Ukraine is is increasingly stuck in, a, in what could only be described as a proxy war because its success is dependent on the support of others. Yes, and there are other proxy wars that might bubble up or are currently bubbling up in other parts of the world that are looking to see how this, you know, how things will fare in Ukraine, how this situation in Ukraine eventually settles uh, in the years, months to come, because obviously what matters in Ukraine is crucial for what ha may happen in Taiwan and what is currently happening in places like Sudan. And we have this um, this warning from Dmitry Medvedev, the, the um, I think he's Russia's Security Council Deputy Chairman. They've, they've been changing former, seats. Former, former president, president, former, former prime, prime minister. minister. Um, and he has warned that this conflict could last for years, if not decades. I mean, that's, that's sort of coming from a playbook. That's coming from the Bashar al-Assad playbook, isn't it? Or Afghanistan. Sit it out Russia. long enough and, and, and they will buckle. I mean, when you had that sense of longevity being installed into this conflict, Conflict. You can see sort of tectonic plates just shifting, not just for a few years, but for, for decades. Because this, the, the invasion of Russia, I think, shocked everybody. But then someone's ever really realised that this is generational now. We will be 20, 30 years into this. And how, in the long term, how will you ever reintegrate Russia as a, as a, as a, as a country on, you know, that plays with the rest of us? It's an enormously big problem. Yes, I mean, I remember, you know... <laughs> covering G8 summits, you know, with Russia around the table. And that is not the case anymore. They couldn't, he, uh, Vladimir Putin couldn't even go to a summit in South Africa because the uh, because of the um, ICC international war crimes um, allegations uh, and charges hovering over Russia's head. And uh, he was advised not to come. So yes, Russia very much, you know, far more of a pariah state than it's ever been before. And very... Uh, very uncertain future, really, politically, um, for many sort of people watching this dynamic, wondering whether or not we'll ever see in our lifetime a Russia post Vladimir Putin. And heaven forbid how that would play out as well with the sort of dynamics inside the Kremlin. Everybody is also wanting a slice of the pie, even if you're a former player. Um, in this, and you've pointed me towards an article in The Times about the former Prime Minister Boris Johnson and the former US President Donald Trump having dinner at a golf club 
this week. One of Donald Trump's golf clubs. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> One of Donald Trump's many golf clubs. Sorry, I've lost count. I don't know how so many he's so got. Have I. <laughs> so have I, having visited them all. Um, I mean, it was one of... One of those funny things when you look and you just think, these are yesterday's men, but they're both having a tilt at power again in the background, aren't they? Well, not Donald Trump in the background, he's front and centre. But we know that Boris Johnson's on manoeuvres to try and get back in. Yeah, and Ukraine is the biggest, most important story of the day, geopolitically, also financially, because there's a lot at play, because big weapons manufacturers are making weapons, Um that are making a difference on the battleground here and people are seeing them in action. And so there's there's a lot at stake geopolitically for the world. There's also a lot at stake economically as well. And, um, you know, Donald Trump might be in the White House in 2024. He might be the the first contender for the Republican Party. And he's expressed a lot more scepticism about supporting the war in Ukraine and all the billions of dollars that's gone on that um, versus Joe Biden. Having said that, though, Let's circle back. And we all remember that Joe Biden did withdraw quite dramatically from the war in Afghanistan, which was one of the United States' longest sort of uh, conflicts, proxy conflicts, as you said, that it was involved in for many, many years. Um, So both of these men talked about Ukraine. This is kind of from Boris Johnson's point of view, though. This is his kind of Churchillian moment, isn't it? You know, he's very popular, obviously, with the current Ukrainian government for the support when he was British prime minister that he sort of pushed for internationally. And we know that Boris Johnson models himself very much on Winston Churchill, who, by the way, was in Downing Street a couple of times, not just once like Boris Johnson. So to keep himself current, uh, you know, he's very much... uh, wandering around the world with former statesmen, as though he is a former statesman, which he is, um, and talking about some of the difficult issues like Ukraine and lobbying to keep it on the forefront of the agenda, partly because it is one of his big success stories from the short time that he was in Downing Street. One wonders what he can achieve, though. I mean, if Donald Trump is genuinely having a go for the for the White House, um, he almost is justified in 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 sort of setting out what his policy would be, which, by the way, according to the to the Times, is um, Russians and Ukrainians are dying. I want them to stop them dying. I'll have that done in 24 hours. Thank you, Donald. Um, but but sounds, Boris... It sounds like his conversations with Kim Jong-un of <laughs> North Korea, doesn't it? <laughs> One wonders what the... Um, we wonders how much will or how much good faith Boris Johnson is talking about in terms of um, his, his, you know, his continuing support for Ukraine. Is this entirely because he wants to support Ukraine, or is it because he wants to carry on being Winston Churchill? I, I mean, I don't know because I'm not inside his head. <laughs> um, and he's, uh, you know, with Boris Johnson, there are always many different stories circling, aren't they? I mean, the week started off when we learned that he was going to become a father for, I think, the eighth time. He's expecting his third Officially. child. First child with Carrie, third child, I beg your pardon, with Carrie Johnson, who is his third wife. Um, and we know that he has a couple, lots of other children as well. Um, so, you know, the, the, with Boris Johnson, he's never far away from the story. Or indeed the Johnson family generally, who are quite sort of media savvy, present people on the media circuit here in London. Um, and then later on in the week, uh, he was accused of having held lockdown parties, not just in Downing Street, but also in Chequers, his prime ministerial residence during the lockdown. So the whole lockdown party gate scandal has bubbled up again. And even that followed him all the way to the United States, where journalists doorstepped him and said, look, you know, are you going to hand over documents showing that according potentially to your diaries, there were lockdown parties? Were there lockdown parties held in in Chequers, your uh, residence outside of London during the lockdown? 
lockdown. This just is something that will not go away. And so from his perspective, being greeted as a former statesman in the world's biggest economy, talking about the most important foreign policy issue of the day, which is a war happening against another sort of aging superpower, like, for instance, Russia, uh, it helps to sort of detract from some of the scandals that continue to follow Boris Johnson uh, back here in the United Kingdom and probably will do for quite some time, by the way, Emma. Yes, I think this might bubble along for quite a while. Um, And Boris Johnson did have a very good war. Uh, Nina, thank you so much. Stay with us. We'll be talking about uh, a couple more stories from the today's uh, papers, which are a little bit of a mishmash today, aren't they? There's no great one story that's dominating the the narrative. Um, One thing that we do need to do, though, is is head to Finland, because Monocle's Helsinki correspondent Petri Bertsoff has has, uh, been kind enough to join us on Monocle on Saturday. Good morning, Petri. Good morning, Emma. And I have to tell you, I have finally discovered what uh, children are good for. So this week has been the main fashion event in in Helsinki um, called Fashion in Helsinki. And last night was the final party of the week. And all of my other colleagues, all the international journalists in Helsinki went out. They're all hung over this morning. I came home responsibly before 9 p.m. last night, put the kids to bed. Woke up 6 a.m. this morning, been already out on a walk and a morning swim. So here we go. Oh, and then you'll go and polish your halo later, Petri. Congratulations. <laughs> we, we, we admire you from over here, although a party does sound nice as well. Um, where are you, by the way? Because when we do check in with you, sometimes you're in mid-Helsinki and you, we're dealing with, with, with urban issues. And then sometimes you do escape to these bu- bucolic blisses that you seem to sort of know so well in Finland. Yeah, so I'm I'm currently just uh, at home in the center of Helsinki. So I have not escaped to one of the several islands uh, off the coast of Helsinki where I some, sometimes go during the weekends. So right in the in the heart of of Helsinki. But you know, you know Helsinki. It's never far from the sea. I'm a couple of hundred meters from the sea. And as I said, I already went for a swim. Goodness me. Again, halo polishing, <laughs> shining brightly. Um, what news from where you are? We understand that that uh, the Finnish language, which is um, a language I, I must confess I haven't even dared to try to learn, apparently is becoming rather popular. Well, yeah, this is a really interesting so- story. So in the Baltic countries, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, uh, they are basically replacing Russian as the second language that you learn in schools after English with uh, Finnish. So um, uh, I read this news and I was wondering, I understand, I totally understand this in the case of Estonia, because Estonian as a language is very similar to Finnish. We almost understand one another. And when Estonia was part of the Soviet Union during the Cold War, Finland Finnish was sort of a language that everybody wanted to learn because it was their chance of of getting news from the West uh, because they would get aerial reception of Finnish Finnish news and they would have to understand Finnish. But then it sort of went downhill in popularity when Estonia joined the EU and 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 became you know became independent. Um, but now because of the Russian war in Ukraine, the uh, popularity of of uh, the Russian language is apparently uh, waning and you know for understandable reasons and it's being replaced um, by Finnish in Estonia but also in Latvia and Lithuania so so I don't I you know they are relatively close to Finland but I mean shouldn't they also be learning maybe Swedish which you know is on the other side of the Baltic so I don't know an interesting story as a Finn I'm, I'm of course very proud and I wish them all the luck it's not the easiest uh, language to learn as, well, as you said Emma. This does beg the question I mean you wish us luck in learning this um, there are not many languages that require a degree of luck to master 
Um, so just, <laughs> could you just remind us, because uh, I know that Nina is a, is, a, is a linguist. Many, many languages work in Nina's head. Um, I've got a couple, I've got one or two under my belt. And Finnish is never anything that I've ever tried. Nina, do you want, have you ever tried, had a tilt at Finnish? No, I believe it's a Finno-Ugaric language. That's about as far as I can get, if that's right. Although I have been to Finland and Estonia many times, and there's such beautiful places. I, I would learn it if I had to live there. So, um, Petri, you now realise you've got two willing pupils on the end of the phone, um, or on the end of the line. <laughs> so um, so come on then, put your money where your mouth is. How hard is it to learn? And um, and actually, can you teach us Finnish in the 10 remaining minutes that we've got on oh, there? Of course, of course, I, I'll, I'll have a crack. So it is, I mean, it is difficult to learn because it's not related to any of the main languages, let's say let's say in Europe. It's not a Germanic or, or a, a, I believe it's a Latin-based, uh, um, Ro- Roman-based language. But it is, um, um, as, as your studio guest said, it is a Finno-Greek language related only to Estonian and uh, remotely to Hungarian. So, but, you know, having said that, I mean, I know I've met refugees from the Middle East in Helsinki who have mastered it in less than a year. Because when you really have to learn a language in order to integrate and get a job, I believe you can learn learn any language you want to but let, let's have a go so so to say hi you would just say moi mori i'm there i'm there i'm <laughs> fluent okay. i've got my gcse under my belt now go on yeah yeah and 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 then to say bye bye you just say moi moi just say it twice twice moi moi that's it that's perfect that's like <laughs> native level finish <laughs> <laughs> okay, I've, I'm I'm clearly basking in triumph. Nina, uh, Petri, have you got something little for Nina to learn? Okay, yes. So I can say cheers, as in uh, when you have a toast with somebody. So that is kippis. Kippis. Yeah, that's oh. it. That's that's correct. Excellent. Some, sometimes when I have a when I teach uh, Americans or Brits, especially when I teach Brits, and uh, they don't quite get it, so I just say, well, just say get pissed. Because it sounds really similar. Oh, so I thought it was like kippers. I thought kippers. <laughs> I thought kippers. Which <laughs> is possibly slightly slightly politer than what you've just said. Um, yeah. <laughs> right, so we just shout kippers when we want to when we, when we want to drink. I love the fact that this is all the beautifully so. These are all the social things that we need to learn because frankly, when you learn a language, you need you, you need to kind of learn three things, don't you? You need to be able to eat, you need to be able to sleep, and you need to be able to get from A to B. So it, let's say okay, so let's say we're all going out for lunch, uh, Petri, which which I do hope we do very soon. Um, what are we ordering, and how do we order it? All right, so I would um, recommend maybe some uh, uh, salmon soup. So you would go to a restaurant and sit down and say the moi, as, as you know, you've already mastered mastered that. So then you would just say, uh, lohikeittoa kiitos. We were already stuck on the salmon soup. <laughs> <laughs> come on, come Nina, on, Nina and I both pulled a face when you said salmon soup. Lohikeittoa, kiitos. That means salmon soup, please. Okay. T- uh, bite, take this down into bite-sized manageable chunks, please, Patrick. <laughs> okay. Uh, how about we just uh, skip the please since Finns are very direct. You are. Really you say are, that. So you we are. just say, you just sit down and you say salmon soup. So that is lohi, that is salmon, L-O-H-I, lohi. And lohi. then keitto, uh, um, kind of as a, as a, like a gate and to. Keitto. Okay, so we say lohi keitto. Oh, that's perfect. That's it. That's it. You you got salmon soup. 
<laughs> what if I want something else? <laughs> Petra, I'm so delighted that you seemed so pleased by our by our efforts. It's it's the most affirming experience I've had on the radio for a long time. Okay, so I've now been given a, a, a bucket of salmon soup. What's Nina having? <laughs> All right, so let's let's try something uh, something easier. Let's say, uh, oh yes, of course, a Baltic uh, Baltic herring. I hope Nina is not a, a vegetarian. So we got Baltic herring coming up, and that would be very easy. You just say silly. Silly. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. Like so silly. <laughs> yeah, silly. Yeah, like silly. Oh, okay. Silly <laughs> is wonderful. I do <laughs> like herring, actually. I think, right, I, I, think I drew the short straw on that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, lohiketua kiitos or silly. And how do you say thank you for all this, Petri? Oh, that's that's very easy. You just say kitos. Kitos. Okay. Kitos. That's it. Kitos. I'm writing all this down, and one day I now know I'm going to be able to eat as much salmon soup as I ever like when I get to when I get to Helsinki. And maybe we're going to need this as well because um, reportedly Finland's become quite a popular place for for for, for holiday makers uh, who don't want the Mediterranean sun. I haven't met one of those yet, but I'm sure you've got dozens of them heading your way. Absolutely, if not millions. Um, this is an interesting story. So, so the national broadcaster Wiley uh, interviewed um, some of the people who work for uh, Visit Finland, so the government tourism uh, board, and they basically talked about how, with climate change, Southern Europe, uh, the summers in Southern Europe are becoming unbearably hot. For many people, you know, when temperatures reach over 40 degrees Celsius, it's not necessarily where you want to be outdoors and spending your holidays. And that is, um, you know, adding to the popularity of of Finland uh, as a summer holiday destination. Because, I mean, Finland in the summers are very pleasant, um, plus 20 to plus 25, not too cold, not too. I mean, it's still T-shirt weather, but not like extremely hot where you just have to stay in an air conditioned um, apartment or or just uh, swim all the time. So so basically, the basically visit Finland is kind of trying to get the balance to strike. Because you know you don't want to say that hey, uh, climate change is great. Uh, Finland is uh, a popular tourism destination, but you still want to promote Finland and say that you know when large parts of the uh, of the world are just getting too hot, this is where you have fresh air and just you know um, pleasant uh, pleasant uh, not too hot hot uh, weather. So I, I I thought this was an interesting uh, story. I have to say, I have not met uh, tourists yet who are who have come from uh, Southern Europe to escape the, the heat. But uh, once they come here, I, I can teach them uh, a couple of words in of Finnish. Yeah, salmon soup all around. Um, just <laughs> explain to us where, the, where these people are going to be coming from, because if the, Span, Span, the, the Spanish and the Italians are still holding fast in their in their beautiful Mediterranean locations, who is going to Finland? Yeah, that's a, that's a that's a good uh, question, I guess. I mean, yeah, I, the Spaniards and the Italians are used to it. I mean, Sicilians, uh, this is like winter for Sicilians. But let's say that, you know, Germans travel a lot. And instead of going to where they usually, where would they go? Mallorca and those places. Maybe they want to head over. They can just take a ferry, basically, from uh, from Hamburg or Travemünde, just across the Baltic. And boom, they're in, in, in Helsinki. So maybe we pin our hopes on, on, on the Germans and the, and the sort of the Central Europeans. And how about not the Brits, you know, instead of going to... Where do Brits go on holiday? Oh, we go to Spain and we go to okay. France. 
And All some right, of us so, go to Italy, but a lot right. of us go to Spain. And you can see, um, unfortunately, um, Petra, you're seeing the direction in which we're travelling. Because um, as Nina and I were mentioning at the beginning of this uh, of this programme, uh, we have seen a big yellow ball in the sky this week for the first time this year. <laughs> and frankly, we've, we've lost our minds. Um, we're having to be outside. Although I do sort of close my eyes and pretend I'm someone else, somewhere else. I don't know about you. I sort of pretend I'm sort of in a restaurant in Rome or something. Um, but maybe that's just because I ache to be out of the UK once it comes to June, July time. It's the leaden skies that get you in the UK, isn't it? I've spent some time um, filming in the Baltics and in Finland and in Sweden in years gone by in the month of May, so about this time of the year. And you, I think it's just the sun. It's seeing the sun that's different, isn't it? And and seeing the sun in, among nature, around nature, isn't it? Sort of this verdant landscape. So that's Pet- what we miss. <laughs> yeah, that's what we miss. And Petri, I'm sure that Finland's got it in, in, in spades. Absolutely, absolutely. Finland is essentially one big forest. I mean, if you drive uh, just half an hour north of of Helsinki, I was actually in central Finland this week for a story. And, you know, you travel on a train and half an hour north of Helsinki, it's just forest for the next uh, 10 to 15 hours. It is absolutely incredible. (laughs) Petri Bertsov, thank you for such a comprehensive guide to travel. Hang on a minute. I'm ready. Kitos. Oh, perfect. Kitos. Ole hyvä is how I would reply. Mori mori. (laughs) (laughs) That was Petri Bertsov, English teacher and Finnish teacher as far as we can gather. Um, Nina, there's a couple of minutes left in this in in this programme. Just just one looking at that. I mean, we do have this desire to travel when it comes to summer summertime, doesn't it? Where are the the travel plans in the Dos Santos family? Uh, I'm off to to Mougin tomorrow. Lovely. South of France, I'm afraid. Following that... um, you know, disc, yellow disc in, in, in the sky that we have outside the studio today, rather rare to see in London. <laughs> the big yellow ball. In- Nina dos Santos, thank you so much for joining us. Beatrice Milhazes is one of Brazil's leading abstract artists working today. She was born and raised in Rio de Janeiro and brought her colourful large-scale works to another coastal location, the British town of Margate, featuring 20 paintings and five collages, which layer shopping bags, chocolate wrappers and glittery stickers in circles. It's a shape that's become somewhat of a signature for Milhazes. And her new exhibition opens today. Your monocle Sophie Monaghan-Coombs went along and began by asking her how it feels to put together a survey show. It's a survey show for an artist. It's a kind of seeing your life through all your itinerary, all your journey about your historical process. And sometimes it's always a celebration of life, I think, you know. Even sometimes it could be painful, sometimes very pleasant to see again all the works. But I would say that the experience here has been wonderful and really good the way they put together every room. And for the people who knows my work will be a discover for different moments. So it will be a hundred percent possibilities of seeing it in a very strong and solid way. And as well as how well the exhibition has been put together and how thoughtfully we're also in Margate and we're by the sea. We can kind of look out these big windows here and see the beach and the sea. And your work is heavily influenced by the city of Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. Could you tell me about how that link felt right, why it feels like the right place here and how the coast and the sea has influenced your work? I was born in Rio de Janeiro no? and grew up there and, and worked and lived there. So Rio is a very unique place because you can like combine a very urban 
life with all the contrast that you could see from social to things that you can find in every big city to the real nature too. So it's ocean, it's mountains, it's like a, a real nature, it's part of your life. So that makes a very unique kind of a city. And then what I think is the strongest link is the nature. It looks like a simple thing to say, but actually it's not because even you have the ocean, there are beaches, same like we have in Rio, but a completely different kind of beaches from the tropical to the European beaches and also the, the way that exists and how it reacts and how people also react to be uh, living in that kind of situation. It makes a completely different experience. What is fascinating, how the same kind of elements like the sky, the wind, the sea, the ocean, the sun, the rain, <laughs> how it could change depends where it is, no? And that is what uh, I call context. That is for me, even I have a lot of references, my cultural background, historical background, the Brazilian one. Also, it's like a context is what really makes the whole difference. So... I don't know if uh, even if I have these elements that I could find in Rio too, if I had grew up here, my work would have the same kind of things, you know? And that was the Brazilian artist Beatriz Milhazes, whose new exhibition opens today at Turner Contemporary in Margate. And that's all we've got time for for today's episode of Monocle on Sunday. Many thanks to all my guests and to the studio engineer in London, Tamsin Howard, and our producer, Isabella Jewell. Monocle on Saturday's back next weekend. Next up, a look at the world of magazines with Monocle's senior correspondent, Fernanda Augusta Pacheco. That's coming up on The Stack. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thanks for listening. Enjoy your weekend. <laughs>